welcome to episode 97 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed the section of the draft resolution of the Second Congress of the County Party Organizations of the Hunan Jiangsu border area, which somewhat self-critically laid out the mistakes that the Communist Party had been making. This episode, I want to turn to the following section of that October 28th resolution, titled Transforming and Building the Party from Now On, which, in an aspirational manner, lays out the changes that the party decided on making in order to correct those mistakes that we discussed last episode. This section of the resolution is comprised of 12 points, just like the self-critical section titled The Past Mistakes of the Party That Preceded It. Rather than go point by point, I think we'll be best served if I read out this section as a whole and then give my observations after that. So let's begin. Section B, Transforming and Building the Party from Now On. 1. The party must be thoroughly transformed, starting with the transformation of the branches, eliminating opportunist leadership, both in organization and in policy. 2. The special committee and the county committees should each have at least four inspectors. They should regularly guide the work at the lower levels and aid in the transformation of party organizations at all levels. 3. Do your utmost to promote as many worker comrades as possible to leading organs. Executive committees and standing committees at every level should have more than half worker and peasant comrades participating. In promoting worker and peasant elements, we should pay special attention to the significance of education. 4. The party organs at every level must be fully organized and individual leadership must be opposed. All power should be concentrated in the standing committee, while the various departments are the technical organs. 5. In the course of transforming the party, we must adopt a completely proletarian point of view. We must make the utmost efforts to pay attention to discussing and carrying out the new policies of the party. We must resolutely distance ourselves from the petty bourgeois, liberal, independent, and romantic elements in the party's past, and be strictly on guard against the tendency to form independent kingdoms. 6. The party should extend democratization to the highest possible degree. Every policy should be discussed enthusiastically and understood thoroughly by the party members, so that the mass of party members will be able to establish their work plans in accordance with the policies. The party committee members, as well as the secretaries at every level, should be chosen by the method of elections. 7. Party members should consist of progressive, conscious, loyal, and courageous poor workers and peasants. Strict limits should be set on petty bourgeois elements, intellectuals, and rich peasants. 8. In the development of the party, special attention should be paid to quality. When introducing party members, the sponsors should do a lot of propaganda work toward and investigation work about those being introduced. Whenever a new comrade is introduced, he should be approved at a party branch meeting and then endorsed by the district committee. We oppose the press gang method of recruiting party members. We must make sure that every party member is a proletarian fighter. The party organization must not seek to become universal, but should pay special attention to creating the basis for a strong party in the central districts. 9. The party should pay attention to its basic organization, the branch, 
and put into practice the slogan of, All of our work depends finally on the branch. At the same time, special attention should be paid to branch work in the urban areas, and excellent worker comrades should also be promoted to become branch party secretaries and committee members in the rural areas, so as to increase the leadership capacity of the workers to be strictly on guard against the tendency toward a peasant party. We must choose progressive elements among the party members in the rural areas and give them special training so as to prepare them to become the backbone of the party. 10. The organization of the party should be absolutely secret. Every party member in every party organization at every level should make the utmost effort to pay attention to secret work. We oppose relying on military and political strength to organize the party. The party should be organized secretly within the area controlled by the enemy group. Fleeing and lying in ambush should be opposed. 11. The special committee should pay attention the special committee should pay the utmost attention to the soundness of its own organization as well as that of every county committee. The Yoshien County Committee should be set up at once, and there should be overall arrangements for the party's work in each and every one of the counties in the border area. 12. Iron discipline is the primary trait of a Bolshevik party. Only in this way can we prevent the party from taking a non-proletarian road. Only by wiping out opportunists and eliminating corrupt elements who refuse to struggle can we gather together the strength of the revolutionary progressive elements and unite them around the party so that the party will be strongly fortified and march in step to become a powerful fighting organization. Only thus can we enhance the leadership capacity of the proletariat. Consequently, the strict application of discipline is an important task in transforming and building the party center. So, taking this section on transforming and building the party from now on as a whole, how can we summarize the prescription given here for rebuilding the party in the wake of the destruction of much of the local party organization during the August defeat, and in a way that would address the weaknesses that were revealed during that defeat? One reason why I read out all 12 points together, rather than going through them point by point, is that there just isn't a lot that is very concrete that can be discussed. Instead of specifying particular measures which will be taken as part of rebuilding the party, much of this section is made up of reaffirmations of general principles that the Communist Party already subscribed to, such as the need for democratic functioning or collective leadership, um, as opposed to the tendency for leading bodies to become one-person dictatorships, as we discussed last episode. A recurring theme is also the importance of the party being composed of workers and peasants, uh, and also the need to educate them, which is a nod to one of the objective reasons why so much leadership remained in the hands of intellectuals despite the recruitment of so many peasants. Uh, this is not very surprising since one of the main themes of the self-critical section of the resolution was the putatively non-proletarian origin of the erroneous ideas within the party. And finally, the primacy of the branch as the basic unit of the party is another major theme here, uh, reflecting the weakness of many of the basic local units of the party in the base area that were created during the high tide, high tide period, uh, as we discussed last episode. So these were the main concerns that got voiced here. So we can see that these were the lines along which the party leadership was thinking about how to proceed with the party reorganization. 
But these are all just, in essence, restatements of basic party policies, which had always existed. I don't get a real sense here that Mao and the party leadership had really come to terms with how the concrete practical demands of the struggle had mitigated the implementation of these party policies in the first place. And while reaffirming those policies might be the first step in trying to put them into practice now, the absence of a more concrete discussion of how that would be accomplished would seem to indicate that they really were still a bit at sea on these questions. And uh, that's really quite understandable. In studying the history of international communism, uh, in part through the documents produced by party organizations at different crisis points in many different times and places all around the world, this is a major recurring theme. When a crisis is recognized and problems are identified, but there's no real sense of exactly how to deal with those problems, documents get produced which reaffirm basic principles in very general terms, but almost always it's only when documents get much more specific do you get a sense that the people in charge really have a good idea how to proceed. And let's face it, these are really hard problems. The basic problem here was, how do you build a massive party organization to govern and revolutionize society in a very poor place with a population of about half a million people in an area about half again bigger than the state of Delaware, which can also defend its own integrity when the enemy occupies the area and under conditions of nearly constant warfare. Well, when I think about it in these terms, it's hard to believe that setting policies could be anything other than working with constant improvisation and always trying to fall back on general principles. Yet, what we're going to see over the next couple decades is that Mao is going to be able, through trial and error, to become quite skillful and adept at managing base areas and revolutionizing rural China. How much of that will be learned improvements in policy creation and implementation, and how much of that will just be him becoming better and better at improvisation, uh, I hope we can continue to explore uh, as this podcast moves forward. Now, following this section that we just read out and discussed, there are several more sections in the resolution. For the most part, they remain quite general. For example, the next section, section C, is titled The Question of Work in Every County, and this section reads in its entirety, it is the responsibility of the special committee to discuss the detailed plan for the work in every county. That's it. That's the whole section. So we're not going to go through all of these other sections of the document. However, there is one section which does have a good bit of concrete substance to it and which informs our understanding of how the party did concretely move forward to try and rectify its organization and membership in the wake of the August defeat. So let's look at that section and then move on to discuss what actually happened. Uh, this is section D, the question of the struggle in the rural areas. It consists of five points, and I do want to go through these one by one. Section D, the question of the struggle in the rural areas. One, in the past, the struggle in the rural areas did not carry out the land revolution at all resolutely. The so-called redistribution of the land wholly failed to satisfy the thoroughgoing demands of the impoverished farm laborers. Instead, it was an equal distribution based on the compromising standpoint of the rich peasants, 
middle peasants, and poor peasants. This is a great mistake which has been made in the past. Back in episode 88, we got into the arguments that had taken place about how to carry out the land reform in the Jingangshan, with the main debate occurring between proponents of a per capita land redistribution and those who advocated redistribution according to the power to work the land. At the time, the argument for per capita land redistribution won out, but we can see here that this policy is now being repudiated in this resolution. We got into some of the pros and cons of each argument in episode 88, and since it's a pretty involved topic and one which uh, we will continue to revisit, I won't go into that further here. As we discussed in episode 88, there were various ways in which some of the better-off peasants were able to hang on to their best land during the land reform. And judging from the next point in this resolution, uh, as well as the fact that we know that many of these better-off peasants turned against the revolution during the August defeat, it's this accommodation of the better-off peasants which I think is really the issue here. Here's the next point in the resolution. 2. In the past, while carrying out the land revolution, we entirely failed to impose a severe red terror and to massacre the landlords and despotic gentry as well as their running dogs. This was done somewhat better in Lianhua and Chaoling. This here represents a major shift on Mao's part. If we'll recall from previous episodes, Mao had been highly critical of the Red Terror policy endorsed by higher-level party bodies and which had been carried out during the South Hunan Uprising. As we discussed back in episode 68, Mao was very concerned with keeping the economy in the base area functioning, and in order to do that, it was necessary to propitiate small and middle merchants and better-off peasants who played such an important role in the economy of the region, even while expropriating the larger capitalists and landlords. And, after the South Hunan uprising, Mao had accurately summed up that the extreme red terror exercised during the course of that uprising had contributed to the communists' inability to generate enough mass support to make a realistic effort to hold on to the cities that they had captured. On the other hand, during the August defeat, Mao found that his lenient policies toward the more prosperous classes in the base area had created something of a Trojan horse when the Red Armies invaded, with many of these people turning against the revolution. So now, we see in this resolution Mao endorsing a policy of Red Terror. We can see that this was a very difficult contradiction. On the one hand, Mao was correct earlier in recognizing that the economy could not function in the base area without the cooperation of the more well-off sections of the masses. But if these people cannot be one to stand with the revolution during difficult times by such leniency, then now he endorsed a terror campaign to coerce them into submission. Uh, naturally, that would not make them friends of the revolution either. So, we'll see how this contradiction continues to play out in the future, but for the time being, we see Mao endorsing a policy of red terror in response to the white terror which had been exercised during the August defeat. And this is definitely a major change of policy on Mao's part. All right, let's take the next two points together. Three, in the past, under the red political power in the rural areas, we largely neglected the class struggle between the rich peasants, the middle peasants, and the poor peasants in the countryside. As a result, there was no unity and strength of the poor peasants under the white terror. The rich peasants defected, and the middle peasants wavered. 4. 
Our overall strategy in the rural struggles from now on is unite the poor peasants, pay attention to the middle peasants, plunge into the land revolution, strictly impose red terror, massacre the landlords and the despotic gentry as well as their running dogs without the slightest compunction, threaten the rich peasants by means of the red terror so that they will not dare to assist the landlord class. I think these two points flesh out the second point and give us a sense of how the red terror is being conceived. Mao is no longer trying so much to create a unified peasantry as to rely almost exclusively on the poor peasants. And I think that this reliance upon the poor peasants is a lesson that's going to last with Mao all the way to the end of the revolution, even though his policies for working with middle and rich peasants will change over time according to different circumstances. All right, let's look at the last point here in this section of the resolution. Five, on the basis of this strategy, we should immediately organize the following. One, a farm laborers union, poor sharecroppers should join this organization, which will serve to unite the farm laborers, enhance their strength, and make them the backbone in the countryside. Two, red execution teams or insurrection teams, which should be organized under the white terror from the bravest workers and peasants. Each red execution team should consist of five to seven persons. They should carry out guerrilla attacks in the dead of night to create a red terror in the countryside. When political power has been seized, the red execution team can be changed into red guards. Three, select the brave elements from among the workers and peasants, organize them into insurrection teams to develop the insurrection in the countryside, and seize political power there. Okay, these are just three basic points for how the communists are going to organize to combat the white terror in the areas still under reactionary rule that are near the areas under communist control or which are in areas that are contested between the communists and the Guomindang. And this gives us a sense of how the communists were concretely working to contest those areas living under the white terror by responding with their own red terror. Now, let's move away from talking about this document to discuss the way in which the Communist Party was reorganized in the wake of reconquering the Jingongshan after the August defeat. This process, which was referred to as cleansing the party, was the first major purge in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It began in September and picked up steam after the early October Base Area Party Congress discussed and ratified the process. This is how the purge worked. It began with revoking everyone's party membership. Then, in each local area, meetings would be convened where each former member would have to re-enlist in the party. The way this occurred was for a secret meeting to be called uh, in a local area, and only those people who are considered certain to be able to pass muster to re-enlist in the party were invited. These meetings were kept secret as part of re-establishing the security norms of the party, which had been cast aside during the high tide period when the party tried to become something of a mass party in the area. At these meetings, the names of all the party members who had not been invited to the meeting would be gone through one by one, and it would be determined whether they were fit to remain members of the party or not. Uh, there were three categories of people who were targeted by the purge for exclusion from the party. Uh, people who had, who carried out party tasks unenthusiastically or even not at all. 
people who had betrayed the revolution during the August defeat uh, or who had been captured under suspicious circumstances and people from bad class backgrounds who were not active in their support of the revolution. Of course, these could be overlapping categories. And as it happened, surprising as it may sound, because the party was now in control of the area, there were people who had joined during the high tide and then sided with the Guomindang during the August defeat, who were now siding with the communists once again, now that the communists were in control. So there was really some urgency in figuring out who all had betrayed the party and getting them out of the party. Uh, the number of party members in the base area went from a high of around 10,000 in June down to about 4,000 after the purge ended in the fall. Some of these losses were during the August defeat, and others came from the cleansing of party ranks process. It's clear that a lot of people were excluded during the party from the party during the purge. Uh, and of course, the purge was also somewhat uneven in how it was carried out. What I've described was how the process was supposed to work, uh, but there were some local party branches where they just resubmitted the entire old list of party members from before as worthy of readmission to the party. And there were other areas where the local leadership complained to higher level party authorities that some good people had been excluded from the party in order to mechanically achieve a higher percentage of worker or poor peasant membership in the party. In his November report to the Central Committee, Mao discussed this party cleansing process like this. This section of the report has the subheading Party Purification and the Establishment of Underground Organizations. Since September, the party has carried out a drastic purge and has set strict class qualifications for membership. Party organizations in Yongxin and Ningong counties were completely dissolved and re-registration was carried out. Re-registration has been completed in Yongxin and Ningong will soon follow. Although the number of party members has been greatly reduced, the party's fighting capacity has, on the contrary, increased. Formerly, the party's organization relied on open political power, almost completely neglecting the importance of secret work. Since September, we have carried out the work of building a complete underground organization. At the same time, we have made every effort to penetrate deeply into the white regions in order to exercise an influence in the enemy camp. In some areas, this has begun to show some results. In the towns, however, we still have no foundation at all. The reasons are, first, that the enemy is relatively strong in the towns, and second, we had harmed the interests of the, interests of the petty bourgeoisie in the cities too much. Business is slow, the craftsmen have ceased to work, and as a result, we can scarcely find a foothold. We are now correcting our former mistakes and striving to establish our organizations in the cities, but so far without much success. Okay, that's Mao from that November Central Committee report, which we'll be talking about in more detail soon. This method of carrying out purges, by the way, was borrowed directly from the Soviet experience. And despite the different conditions, it's remarkable how much the experience of expansion and purge in the Jingangshan echoes the Soviet experience. In the Soviet Union, the Communist Party had faced the need to expand rapidly in order to govern after the revolution and, and had brought in just a ton of people very rapidly. Inevitably, there were difficulties with people being brought in who, for whatever reason, were unable to carry out their tasks or who had only joined to pursue their own self-interest and not out of political unity with the revolution. 
And so the way this was dealt with was with big purges where large numbers of people would have to go through a process of reapplying for party membership. Um, to give you some relevant numbers, the Communist Party in Russia went from 24,000 members in January 1917 to 612,000 in March 1920 and 732,000 in March 1921. Uh, from 1921 onward, the numbers were greatly reduced by purges. And so in 1923, uh, they amounted to 499,000. Um, there's a vivid fictional representation of what these purges were like in a novel which I highly recommend titled Cement, um, written by Fyodor Gladkov, which was published in 1925. Um, anyways, that's it for now. Until next time, take care.